Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 14 in the book of John, entitled Preaching at the Feast of Booths, where we'll discuss John 7, verses 1 through 24. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, I'm looking forward to discussing John chapter 7. There's a lot in this text, and over the next couple podcasts, we're going to look at the entire chapter, but today we're focusing on verses 1 through 24. What are we going to see in these verses today as we look at John chapter 7? Well, I think throughout the whole chapter of John, we're going to see it here as well. Um, John, John's gospel is written to bring people to faith in Christ. And he does a very good job of giving us positive reasons why we should believe in Jesus. Hmm. Seven extended teachings, seven miraculous signs, tremendous evidence that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing that that he is the Son of God, we can have life in his name. But a sub-theme of John's gospel is what unbelief looks like, what rebellion looks like, the fact that that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than, than light, for their deeds are evil, and they reject the truth. And so we're going to see rejection even among his brothers. We're going to see rejection among the people of, of Jerusalem as he goes up. We're going to see the Jewish leaders. We're going to see all kinds of rejection and also the end of the chapter, different ways of accepting and learning and growing. So it's going to be an exciting study. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to it. What I'd like to do now is go ahead and read verses 1 through 24 for us, and then we'll dive into some questions related to the text. So this is John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Hmm. Andy, right away in this passage, 
we're met with a picture of Jesus seemingly avoiding Judea. Why, why was Jesus staying away from Judea in verse 1? And what motivated Jesus' brothers to tell him to go to Judea in verses 3 and 4? Well, frequently when Jesus retreats from the crowd or retreats from his enemies, it's because uh, things are getting hot. Things are accelerating and he is trying to control um, the time, the very brief time, which he talks about even in this chapter. He doesn't have a lot of time with them, but he's trying to control their reaction. And he's going to talk about how the world hates him. We'll get to that in a moment. But um, they get hot. And so they either either want to grab him and make him king by force because they're positively in favor, or they want to seize him and kill him like right away in, in Nazareth when he preached the gospel. They're ready to throw him off a cliff. And so frequently Jesus has to manage that and he does it by retreating. He hides himself, he slips away. And again and again, we have in John's gospel, the statement, his time has not yet come. And so he doesn't wanna go to Judea because they're ready to kill him. The text openly says it. And so he's pulling back from that. Why would his brothers then tell him to go to Judea in verses three and four? Well, that's really where it's happening. That's where Jerusalem is. And so effectively, you want to be king of the Jews. You want to, you want to lead this messianic entourage. Um, you need to go where the people are. And it's really quite remarkable here because it's like they're giving him PR advice. It's like they're taking him aside, putting an arm around Jesus saying, listen, you have talent and you can do some things that we, we're amazed, but you, you have a little to learn about how to manage people. So if you could just take some advice, if you wanna be a great figure, you gotta go where all the people are. And in the very act of giving Jesus advice, John says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Mm. You don't need to give Jesus any advice at all. He is the ancient of days. He knows exactly what he's doing. And his counselor, as he says over and over, ultimately is his father. His father's telling him what to do and when to do it. He doesn't need his brothers coming alongside and telling him that. So um, they're, trying to, they're trying to push him forward and make him a public figure. And Andy, you kind of addressed this in your answer to that last, yeah. last question, but according to verses five through seven, mm-hmm. why can't the world hate Jesus' brothers? And in light of John 15, 18 through 19, what do these verses teach us about Jesus' brother's spiritual state? Yeah, well, let's take the last one first. Uh, it openly says what it tells us. They were not yet believers in Christ. Now, it's really remarkable. Uh, in our church right now, we're going through the book of James, and we believe, as most scholars do, that this is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, James had the same mother as Jesus, Mary, but obviously had uh, Joseph as his literal biological father, whereas Jesus father was God and he had no human father. And so scholars call uh, James Jesus' half-brother. So in life, in Jesus' public ministry, James did not believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, but he did in the end and became a pillar in the church of Jerusalem. And it's remarkable how in 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Jesus appeared to Peter and the 12 and the 500 and then to James. And you think about what that was like for Jesus to specifically seek James out in his post-resurrection appearances mm-hmm. and strategically win him over so that he's there in the upper room with the church, believing and praying and waiting for the descending Holy Spirit. That's James. But at this point in John 7, he doesn't believe in Jesus yet. Wow. Wow. So I, I, I think you asked another question. Um, uh, why can't the world, that's right, why can't the world hate Jesus' brothers? And, and he says it openly, the reason the world cannot hate them is because they belong to the world. If they don't believe in Jesus, they're part of the world system. 
The reason the world hates me, Jesus said, is I testify that what it does is evil. That was the reason for the hatred. The Pharisees were arrogant, self-righteous, full-time religionists. And along comes Jesus telling them that their righteousness is insufficient for heaven. Tells Nicodemus, if you're not born again, you're not going to see heaven. Tells people in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and scribes, you will not enter heaven. They got offended. You either repent and say, Lord, what do I do? Become a spiritual beggar. I, I want righteousness that's going to be suitable for heaven. What can I do? Or you get angry and enraged and become murderous. And mm -hmm. that's what Jesus' enemies did. The world hated him because he testified that what it did was evil. And we see that too in evangelism. People get upset at us because we're saying you need a savior. You're a sinner, you need a savior. It's not a popular message. But Jesus' brothers were part of that world system and so the world couldn't hate them. I think that's so helpful. It helps us understand how we should think of the world's hatred, even in our own evangelistic conversations now, understanding why the world hates us, not, not just for us, but because of the Savior and the message which we proclaim. And it's hard. I mean, I think it's a challenging message, but we have to be willing to proclaim it and willing to be persecuted for telling the truth. If somebody's heading over a cliff, we want to do what we can to stop them. If somebody's heading toward hell, they're on that highway to hell, we want to do what we can to persuade them. But sometimes I picture it like a drowning person in a lagoon and we're swimming out to save their lives and they're beating us up the whole way back to shore. And then they're hugging us once they get their right mind and, and all that. So in the case of the elect that God is working to save, in the end, they'll be thankful, in the end. But uh, there's some hostility along the way because we testify that what it does is evil and people don't wanna hear that. Hmm. By the way, one other thing popped in my mind, Martin Luther said, typical of Luther, such a bold man, but he said, as a preacher, you should always, always preach in such a way that when you get done, people will either hate you or hate their sins. <laughs> So now it's a high standard for preaching and <laughs> Luther high. could pull it off, right. but at any rate. What's really helpful for us as we consider the world's perspective on this message and on us as those who carry it. Verses 8 through 16 give us some unique insights into the timing and the teaching of Jesus. How do you understand the apparent change from verse 8 where Jesus says that he's not going up to this feast and the fact that he does go up to the feast in verse 10? Mm. Well, I think there's the sense of, of it was not yet time. So either, either Jesus is openly lying to and misleading his brothers or he changed his mind and later went or he really what he means is I'm not going right now. He just doesn't say that fully, but he said, I'm not going to the feast. I mean, that could be understood. I'm not going to the feast. And five minutes later, you go to the feast. Now, although five minutes, we would think, you know, the person lied. Um, but if you go a couple of days later, I think it's pretty clear that Jesus is managing his ministry and he's doing it with the wisdom of God. He knew when it was time not to go, and then he knew when it was time to go. And so he does want to go and he will go and he'll give a, a remarkable uh, speech on the last and greatest day of the feast. So we'll talk about that. But anyway, it was a matter of timing. So I don't think he's misleading his brothers. I don't think he lied to them. He's just, it, we should hear it, not yet. It is not yet time for me to go. That's helpful. Verses 11 through 13, in the middle of that section we just mentioned, give us a picture of the Jews looking for Jesus and muttering amongst themselves mm -hmm. about him when they cannot find him. Mm -hmm. Then right in the middle of the feast, Jesus begins to teach in the temple. Why were the Jews so surprised by Jesus' teaching ability? And what do we learn about Jesus' teaching in verses 15 and 16? 
Well, I think, first of all, they're all expecting him to be there because very much like Jesus' brothers, like, well, why wouldn't you be there? First of all, it is required. All the Jews had to go out three times a year. So they're fully expecting him to be there. But realize Jesus is without a doubt the most famous person in the region because of his healings. When you read again and again in the Synoptic Gospel, like the Gospel of Mark, huge crowds were gathering around him so much that you couldn't even get close to him. People had to dig through the roof to lower a paralyzed man. Uh, Jesus' own disciples didn't even have time to eat because there was such a crush of people. And now this is one of the times when the entire Jewish nation is going to be assembled in Jerusalem. Of course Jesus is going to come, and he's not there, so they're shocked. But then the leaders are shocked and the people are shocked at the level of Jesus' teaching ministry. They're amazed. How did he get this kind of wisdom? And I think the reason is that there, you would imagine, we would think there was just one kind of main school of biblical exposition, the rabbinic school there in Jerusalem. If you didn't graduate from that seminary, you didn't have a diploma from there, you were not schooled, you were not trained. And you can, you can actually sense the arrogance of the scribes hmm. and the Pharisees. They, they had training. They called the other people that were not trained like a mob or a rabble. They, they really were disdainful. Uh, and along comes Jesus. And frankly, I want to say, along comes first John the Baptist. And they, they have the same issue. And the issue has to do with the origin of his teaching, the origin of his authority. And Jesus puts his finger on that because when he cleansed the ten temple, they said, by what authority are you doing these things? He said, I'm gonna ask you a question. If you answer me, then I'll answer your question. John the Baptist, his baptism, where did it come from, the authority to do it? Did it come from heaven or from men? Well, they pull off into this little unholy huddle, say, well, look, if we say from heaven, then they'll say, then why didn't you believe in me? He'll say, why didn't you believe in him? But if they say from men, the people think he was a prophet. So, what do, so they say, we don't know. So they punted. It's the same issue with Jesus. Where do you get this authority? Where do you get the teaching? Now, we know as Christians, it came from God. Hmm. That is the issue. He didn't have to graduate from their seminaries. He got his teaching directly from God. Yeah, and I think we see this when Paul talks about his own pedigree and looks back as that being something that would have been held in really high regard yeah. to the people that he was addressing. But then also even in our own day, I think yeah. we can see the elevation of graduating from a certain institution sure. or learning under a certain teacher as the means by which we get a message that's authoritative. But we know that that message is one that's come uh, to us from God in his word. And you know, it's funny you mentioned Paul because he says the exact same thing in Galatians 1. He said, the gospel I preach, I didn't get it from men. I was taught it directly by heaven. And that's his role as an apostle. So uh, he basically, in the end, punted his, his seminary education on Gamaliel. It didn't mean anything. It was right. rubbish to him. What meant something is God, Almighty God, through the Holy Spirit, taught him the gospel of the only begotten Son of God. That was his authority. Hmm. In this passage, verse 17 is very important. What does it mean for one's will to be set on doing God's will? And if you choose to do the will of God, what will be the result according to this verse? So I think this is a vital insight. Jesus says, if anyone is willing to do my will or chooses to do the will of God, ultimately, then you will know my teaching, whether it comes from God or not. So in other words, fundamentally, we will believe that Jesus's words came from God and that Jesus himself came from God, that he is the only begotten Son of God if we are willing to do the will of God. So he zeroes in on the will. Is your will submissive to God or is it rebellious? And so the fundamental cast of the will 
either towards submission to God or rebellion against God will determine what we think about the Bible and about Jesus' teachings. And so therefore, I believe this is of the essence of our conversion. When the Holy Spirit takes out the heart of stone and gives the heart of flesh, I think the difference there is the difference between hard and soft or rebellious and yielded and submissive. And so what he does is he changes our will and makes us say, you are the Lord, I am the servant. What do you want me to do? And first and foremost, he's gonna say, believe in Jesus. Yes, Lord, and then what? And then everything flows from there. So our, a willing spirit that God gives, that's of the essence of our conversion. And if we have that, then we'll know whether Jesus' authority and his teaching comes from God or not. I love the connection you made with conversion. I think of how sweet it is to see in a young believer, a new believer, as they really do see their own will conformed more and more to God's will and see themselves loving the things that God loves and hating the things that he hates and how that really does flow from that change that's taken place. Mm. What does verse 18 teach us about Jesus' motives in teaching and how should this affect a teacher of God's word today? Yeah, really what, what we've got is we've got vain glory or human glory or self-glory versus living for the glory of God. And again, that's gonna go back to the basic issue of our conversion. Before we're converted, we live for our own honor, our own mm. glory. We are self-focused, and frankly, it's demonic, it's satanic. Like the, the ultimate, I think the, the single most arrogant thing any creature has ever done in history is Satan saying to the only begotten Son of God, Jesus, fall down on the ground in front of me and worship mm. me. And we're like, boy, is that disgusting. But we have that nature inside ourselves. We want to be honored. We want to be esteemed. We want to be to be celebrated and 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 perhaps even worshipped. And so fundamentally, Jesus said, the difference between me and all the false teachers is everything I do is for the honor of God. But if uh, someone comes along who speaks for his own honor, then his teaching is discredited. The reason my teaching is not discredited is I do not seek my own honor, but I seek the honor of the one who sent me. So this goes now to these two issues, uh, a submissive heart, a willingness to obey, we just talked about a moment ago, mm -hmm. and living for the glory, the honor of God, and not for our own glory. This is of the essence of our conversion. So many who are listening to this are just seeking to understand God's Word more for their own benefit, to grow in their sanctification. Some may be listening just as they consider how they can then turn around and teach the Word. And so specifically as it relates to how a teacher of the Word should think about the task entrusted to them, do you think there's application for, for us here as we think about that? It's a beautiful question. It is. I mean, I'm a regular preacher and a teacher of the word. And so what I have to do is look at this verse, verse 18, and say, he who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself. But he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There's nothing false about him. So if I want to be a true teacher of the word, I have to work for the honor of the one who sent me. And Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So we should work for the honor of Jesus. Uh, I remember when I began preaching years ago at the church plant up there in Massachusetts, there was, uh, it was in the Topsfield Town Hall, and we had a little podium there that was part of just town hall meetings, and we used it as a pulpit. And a woman had made a cloth uh, that was cross-stitched and had a picture of the church's logo on the front. Mm -hmm. But then on the Velcroed part that I could see that caused it to hang there, she had cross-stitched something from Charles Spurgeon. And it said, step, step aside, sir, so that they may see Jesus. Mm. And uh, in other words, get yourself out of the way. Make certain that when you get done, uh, the people think about the honor and the glory 
of Christ. Now I want to tell another story. I remember Don Carson, D.A. Carson, told the story about the first time that he heard Martin Lloyd-Jones preach, who was one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century, a Welsh preacher, great expositor of the word. And he was there in England. Don Carson was getting his um, his his doctorate, and somebody said, you've got to go hear the doctor preach, Martin Lloyd-Jones. So he found a way to get over there on a Sunday, and, and he said, as Lloyd-Jones began, his overriding thought was, this guy is overrated. (laughs) (laughs) Because Martin Lloyd-Jones' intros, introductions, were rather pedantic and boring. Hmm. Um, But then once he got going, and once he got heated up, Don Carson said, I had changed my opinion completely. I thought, this is the greatest preacher I've ever heard in my life. But in the last third of the sermon, I entirely forgot about Lloyd-Jones. And all I could think was of the majesty of Christ. That basically I had been transported almost into the heavenly realms thinking of the greatness and the beauty of Jesus. So I think about that when I get up to preach. It's so helpful and and a helpful prayer, I think, uh, that we oftentimes pray on Sunday mornings before a service that people would leave not saying what a great service, but what a great Savior. Amen. Uh, And that's, I I think, our hope as we communicate the Word of God. So the the passage that we're looking at today really closes with kind of a tense discourse between Mm -hmm. Jesus and the crowd in verses 19 through 23, Mm -hmm. and it culminates in one final statement from Jesus. What does Jesus mean when he says, do not judge by appearances, Mm -hmm. but judge with right judgment? And how does this inform the way that a Christian should refrain from or engage in judgment? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Yeah, there's a lot of heat here, and Jesus says some things, and they're they're just blown away. But Jesus knows them better than they know themselves. You're trying to kill me. I mean, he knew that they were pulling aside and plotting to kill him, and they answered such with such disrespect. You're demon possessed. Who's trying to kill you? Well, you are. He knew them better than they knew themselves. He knew that they hated him and that all of that hatred tended toward murder. Um, And the crowd had its role when Jesus was um, on trial before Pilate. They wanted him dead. Away with him, away with him, crucify him, they cried out. So they they definitely had this, this hatred and this hostility. They wanted to kill him. And yet Jesus zeroes in and said, all right, let's let's look at your basis. You have rejected me. You've rejected me as the Messiah, you've rejected me as who I claim to be. Mm. On what basis? Well, you're zeroing in on just one thing. What I did on the Sabbath, it's a simplistic way of thinking. Because I broke your Sabbath rules and healed a man on the Sabbath, you think I'm a false teacher. It's, to you, it's just mathematical. If you break the rabbinic rules or the Pharisees' rules on what to do or not to do on the Sabbath, you cannot be from God. And yet the miracles speak that I'm from God. Now, Jesus in another place claims to have the authority to interpret the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I can tell you what to do on the Sabbath. But he said, let's argue about this. Let's think about it. You do circumcision on the Sabbath? Why can't I heal somebody on the Sabbath? You have these simplistic judgments, judging on surface appearance. Some of them are ridiculous. We know where this man has come when the Messiah comes. No one will know where he is from. Just these simplistic rules. And he's saying, look at the body of evidence. Look at my words. Look at my actions. Look at my miracles. Look at all that. You're just judging on outward appearance. I broke, as far as you're concerned, a rabbinic rule. Therefore, I cannot be from God. Don't judge like that. Judge with right judge not based on surface appearance, but with a right judgment. So, how does what does that say about judgment? Well, judgment has to come. In this case, I think the word judgment would be discernment. Let your discernment come 
from the evidence that I've been and he's been giving it in John's gospel. The scriptures testified, John the Baptist has testified, God testified, the miracles testified. There's all these testimonies. So judge with right judgment, make a right judgment and with good discernment. Andy, there's so much in this text, and I appreciate you bringing out even just some of those insights from that last section there. Uh, any final thoughts on this passage as we kind of wrap up? Well, I'll tell you what, as I, as I read this and I see the hostility and the opposition for U.S. as well, the two of us are genuine believers in Christ, and all I can do is thank God for His grace. Mm. I know if the Lord not, had not taken out my heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh, I would be rebelling, rebelling. I'd be fighting. Christ testified about me that my deeds are evil, and I believe it and I'm not fighting it. I just want to repent and I want to be transformed. I know the same is true of you. All I can do is say, thank God for my salvation. And I'll say to you, oh listener and friend, if you're a genuine believer in Christ, you should do the same. And if you're not yet a believer in Christ, don't fight it. Just yield and come to faith in Christ and let him forgive you and save you. Amen. Praise the Lord for that offer of salvation that's made. Well, this has been episode 14 in the book of John. We'd invite you to join us next time for episode 15 entitled, Is This Man the Christ? where we'll discuss John chapter 7, verses 25 through 52. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.